many of you, this season is one of my favorite times of the year as well. But maybe, unlike you, it's my favorite time for different reasons. Some of you love the decorations, some of you love the parties, the gifts, time with family. I love TV Christmas specials. The Grinch, Frosty, Rudolph, give me them all. I love every single one of them. But my favorite by far is a Charlie Brown's Christmas. I'm sure many of you have seen that. I don't know the last time you've watched it. It's not been a while. But it's a different experience watching Charlie Brown's Christmas as an adult versus when you're a kid. It has a much more serious tone to it. You see, if you haven't seen it, Charlie Brown's Christmas is about the boy Charlie Brown trying to find joy at Christmas. And it's ironic because he knows Christmas is supposed to be this happy time. He knows he's supposed to feel happy, but he doesn't feel happy. So he spends the whole episode searching for joy in one thing after the other. And ironically, the more he searches for joy, the more depressed he comes. And finally, in desperation at the end of the show, as he's directing the Christmas pageant, he cries out, is there anyone who can tell me the true meaning of Christmas? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's you. In the midst of the busyness and the burdens and some of the stress that the Christmas season can bring on, maybe you've been searching for joy and you haven't been able to find it anywhere. Maybe your heart is crying out, I really want to feel joy this Christmas, but I can't seem to find it. Well, Zephaniah is going to help you out this morning. His message this morning in three verses is astonishing. And what you're going to see, what Zephaniah is going to tell us, is that your search for joy this season is actually going to be found in God's joy for you. And that changes everything. So three reasons for joy from Zephaniah. And I'll go through these one by one. The demand for joy, the deliverance of joy, and the delight of joy. So start out with the demand of joy in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Notice our passage begins with a strong demand from God for our joy. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice, exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And you don't have to spend four years in seminary to figure out what God's trying to tell us here. He's trying to tell us, be joyful. He's calling for all-out celebration. As Stephen often reminds us in the call to worship, these have exclamation points on them. Sing, shout, rejoice, exult. God is commanding his people to be joyful. Has that ever struck you as odd throughout Scripture? Have you ever wondered why God does not just suggest our joy, but he actually commands our joy? That all throughout Scripture, God does not see joy as kind of a nice option if you can muster it up. But he he sees our joy as absolutely essential to our lives. Like I said, we see it every week in the call to worship. We saw it this week when we said, clap your hands, shout to God with loud songs of joy. The call to worship aren't suggestions from God. They're commands from God. And what's even stranger about God's demand for joy is when he often demands it. Throughout the Bible, God usually calls for our joy, not when things are going well, but when things go bad. For example, you have all the calls for praise in the Psalms when David's running from his life, running for his life. Or, for, or from Paul, when he calls the church at Philippians, rejoice always, and he's writing from a prison cell. Or you have Jesus 
and our assurance of pardon, telling us he wants us to have joy and joy to the full. And this is the night before he is crucified. God demands our joy, not when things are going well, but when things are in the dark. And you see that exactly in Zephaniah 2. We started in Zephaniah 3.14 with God's call to rejoice. But do you know how Zephaniah starts? The book of Zephaniah for three chapters is some of the darkest judgments from God in all Scripture. I'll just give you an example how the book starts out. Zephaniah 1.2 I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And it keeps going like that for three more chapters. Judgment after judgment, woe after woe, deeper and deeper into the darkness. Until you get to our passage. And then God says, sing aloud. Shout, exult with your whole heart. So what gives here? How can God command our joy in the face of so much darkness? You might be asking yourself that same question here this morning. You might be asking yourself, how am I supposed to sing aloud when all I know right now is suffering? How am I supposed to shout to the Lord when I'm so much struggling with the sins of my life? How does God expect me to exult with my whole heart when I'm a Presbyterian? We have a hard time getting our hands out of our pockets, let alone exulting to the Lord. Is God blind to the darkness? No. This this demand from God for joy is so hard for us to understand because we don't understand what joy really is. You see, we often define joy negatively. We see joy as an absence. So for us to have joy, there must be an absence of suffering. There must be an absence of bad circumstances. There must be an absence of problems. If I'm going to have joy, take those things away from me. But the Bible defines joy positively, not as an absence, but a greater presence. Joy in the Bible is not the absence of problems. It's not the absence of suffering. It is the presence of something greater in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your darkness. That's why the Bible oftentimes places joy and sorrow together. Laughter and lament go together. And maybe this picture will help. One of my mentors in seminary always described it like this. He said our hearts and our joy, we oftentimes think of them like a cup. And so that cup gets filled up with negative circumstances, our sins, our struggles from the world. And when we hear these calls for joy in Scripture, we think we have to empty out that cup and replace it with these positive joys. We think we have to pour out all the negative and then replace it with the positive. Just put on a smiling face. Just think better thoughts. But that doesn't work because it oftentimes feels fake. We're just smiling our way through life when really deep suffering is going on. He says, don't think of your heart like a cup. Think of your heart like balance scales, the weights of justice with scales on each side. Where there really is suffering and sin and evil and darkness that, that come into our lives and they're in our hearts and they're on those scales. But when God demands our joy, he is asking us to place counterweights on the other side. Other, th- other things in your life that are present for joy, even as you bear the sorrows. 
I'll give you a story what this looks like. Many of you all in the past year have been involved to some degree with what's going on in the Ukraine. We have mission partners in Belarus. You all have prayed. You all have given money. You all have asked for updates. And as you all know, that war in the Ukraine has been absolutely devastating. And we really can't imagine what the people over there are actually going through. But do you know what? As the war goes on and we get closer and closer to Christmas, do you know what people are starting to hear in the midst of bombing? Wedding bells. My friend sent me an article this week from the New York Times, and here's what the title is. The glow of a wedding amid bombs and blackouts. And the writer interviews one of the brides in the Ukraine, and he, and he asks her, why a wedding during a war? Isn't that being thoughtless to what's going on? Is war really the best time for a wedding? Isn't that kind of trivial? Here's what one bride said. My feet ached. I never wear high heels. But today I hope that the glamour of dressing up and holding flowers would challenge the darkness of this war. By dressing up and celebrating, we refuse to let violence control every aspect of our lives. Joy still exists here in the Ukraine, and this wedding claims a right to it. In the midst of this war, this bride claimed the right to joy. You see, joy is more than a feeling. It it obviously includes feelings. It includes emotions. But it's much deeper than that. Joy is a reality. And that's exactly what Stephen told us in our call to worship. The joy for the Christian is a flag that we fly. That's why God demands it in the darkness. Because joy is a deeper reality than darkness. Just like the bells at a wedding are a deeper reality than war. Fleming Rutledge, the author, has said, Advent always begins in the dark, and that's where your joy will too. So the first thing we need to do this morning, the first thing we need to do in order for our joy is we must start in the dark. We can face the darkness as Christians. We can take stock of all the darkness going on in your heart and in your life and in this world. You can put it up on the scale. All your sins, all your suffering, all your stress, all your burdens, Put it up on the scale of your heart because you're going to see no matter how great your darkness is, Christmas can take care of it. So let's go there now. We've seen the demand for joy. Now let's look at the deliverance of joy. Verse 15 and 16. How can you have joy this Advent? Notice these demands for joy are not tied to your doing, but to God's doing. And God's doing a lot. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Three chapters of darkness in Zephaniah were just taken away in two verses. Not even two verses, two sentences. All the future judgment that was pronounced on God's people for their sin, for their unfaithfulness, God has now shifted those judgments to the past. The Lord has taken away the judgments. And all those different enemies that lined up for three chapters... They lined up with their taunts of their foreign powers. And as God's people awaited the exile to Babylon, now God says, your enemies have been cleared away. How can he do that? How can God take away our judgments and clear away our enemies? Well, he delivers us, doesn't he? Do you remember the Christmas story? If you don't remember the Christmas story, he repeats it twice in verse 15 and 17, just so you don't miss Christmas in the Old Testament. Verse 15, 
Here's how God delivers us. The king of Israel is in your midst. And then verse 17, he repeats it again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. How does God Almighty deliver us into, our, into his joy? He comes into our midst. Literally translated, he, come, he came to get in the middle of it. Do you know why this baby in Luke 2 that we just read in our, in our New Testament passage, do you know why this baby is making angels giddy? When, while they announce from heaven that this baby in this manger means good news of great joy, while wise men come to see him, while King Herod is scared to death, while Mary sings, while other babies in the womb leap for joy when they come into the same room? Because the angel of the Lord told Mary and Joseph, you're going to name this baby Jesus. And that name Jesus means something. It's the same word that you see in Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17 says, A mighty one who will save. That word save in the Hebrew is our English translation for Jesus. When Jesus is named, it is a declaration that Yahweh has come to save us. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that is the Christmas story. The Christmas story is God's declaration to the dark that deliverance is coming. And deliverance is coming because the king is going to show up. And that might be hard for you to imagine, the importance of. What's it mean that a king shows up? We live in democracy. We don't have a monarchy. We don't have a ruler. So maybe this story will help. In Queen Elizabeth's 70-year reign, she made a lot of visits to a lot of different people. But actually, one stands out among them all. You all might have heard this story. It's a tragic one. But in 1966, in the small mining village of Aberfan, Wells, there was a horrible mining accident. It was a small coal mining village. And over time, coal waste had built up so much that one fateful morning, it slid down the hill. And unfortunately, all that coal waste landed on top of a school. And when that happened, in the end, 144 people had died, 116 of them being children. And you can't, that's hard to imagine. This small village of 3,000 people losing 116 children in one day, just like that. And the queen was initially advised not to go. They thought her presence there would be too much. While they're trying to rescue so many people, it would bring too much attention, too much noise. So the queen sent a press release calling for attention and resources. She sent her advisors. She even sent the prince. But they didn't need a press release. Those people in their darkness, in their tragedy, they needed the queen. So eight days later, she showed up. And it's amazing, you can look at this now, but to hear the stories of those villagers now, what her presence that day meant to them. How her presence, her just showing up alone, brought them so much comfort in their grief. Here's what one of them said. Her name is Marjorie Collins. Her son died at the school that morning. Here's what she said. She said, her visit brought the deepest comfort to me. When I close my eyes, I can still see her. That day, she didn't come as the queen. That day, our monarch came as our mother. And I've never gotten over the shock that day of seeing our queen walk through the mud. That's shocking. 
to see the Queen of the United Kingdom walking in that darkness with mud on her boots. But if we're in shock about seeing the Queen of England walking through the mud, what are we going to do when the King of the Universe shows up in a manger? I told you to put darkness on the scale of your hearts. How about putting the incarnation up there too? And if you think the manger is a strange place for their king, wait till we get to Good Friday. When our king climbs up that hill and he gets on that cross. Listen to me this morning. If God gets in the middle of that, there's nowhere he will not get in the middle of. The poverty of the manger, the agony of the cross... What darkness will he not go to for you? Jesus shows up and his boots have mud on them. Why? He came to deliver you. And he came to deliver you so you really can start to sing. So let's end there now. Let's end with our singing. We've seen the demand of joy. We've seen the deliverance of joy. Now let's finish with the delight of joy. This passage keeps on escalating to places we don't even know where to go. Why can you have joy this Advent? God has not just delivered you from his judgment. He has delivered you into his actual joy. Look at Zephaniah 3.16. Zephaniah 3.16, he says, On that day, and that day meaning looking forward to the coming of Christ, so the coming of his first coming in the manger and his second coming in all glory, on that day, talking about God's coming, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Why? Again, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And the next three lines are one of those rare passages in Scripture where we're actually brought into who God is in himself. We're brought into the very inner life of God, the holy of the holies. And here's what Zephaniah tells us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Why can you have joy? God is happy, and he's happy in you. Everything that God demanded from us in verse 14, now he's doing for us in verse 17. Did you catch that? Verse 14, we're called to rejoice. Verse 17, now God rejoices over us. Verse 14, we're called to sing aloud. Verse 17, now God exults over you with loud singing. And this is one of those passages that you're really, really thankful for divine revelation because you could never come up with this on your own. It's hard enough to imagine God. How about imagine him singing? You couldn't think up a God like this. And this is the secret to joy at Advent and any other time of the year. It's not about your joy in God. It's actually about God's joy in you. And that's almost too much to handle, isn't it? To think about God rejoicing over you, quieting you by his love, exulting over you with loud singing. I've thought so much this week of how in the world can I get these words of Scripture into your all's lives. I've thought so much this week, how can I help them feel this the way Zephaniah means for us to feel it? Because I so want you to know God's joy for you. Because what these three lines did for me this week, I I really can't describe I can't describe what these three lines did in my heart and my life this week. And I want you to have that. I wish I could do a whole sermon series on these three. But for right now, let's just take the last one. 
He will exult over you with loud singing. So here's what you can do. Sometime, maybe today, this afternoon, as the sun is about to set, take a drive out to horse country. It's not too far. And watch as the sun starts to set over those rolling hills and look at all the beauty of the bluegrass. Or better yet, maybe even next weekend, get up early, go down I-75, 30, 45 minutes to Berea, skip Bucky's. You can come back for it later. You can hike up the pinnacles early in the morning and get up there right as the sun is about to rise and watch its light capture all those mountains. God's creation is absolutely stunning, and that's just in our neck of the woods. We're not talking about the depths of the ocean here. We're not talking about mountains over 6,000 feet. We're just talking about the bluegrass, and it's beautiful. And God created all of it. But you know what? All of that creation does not make God sing. Yes, of course, he spoke it into existence in Genesis 1. And yes, of course, he said, my creation is very good. But when God created the world, he did not sing. But when he redeemed you, he did. And I really do mean you. When he redeemed you, he sang over you. And if you are here this morning and God has delivered you, you are his and you make him sing. So what do you do with that? What do you do with a God who sings over you? Many of you all know that the last month has been very trying for my family. We spent some time in the PICU with our son, Caleb. Some, one of you even asked me about it this morning. And this church has been so supportive and gracious and encouraging to me. I'm so thankful for that. But if you don't know, Caleb woke up one, one, one morning with RSV and it escalated very quickly. And so we rushed him to the ER and eventually that moved to the PICU, and we were there for a pretty long time. We were there for eight days. And you all, many of y'all know this, but the PICU is one of the saddest places on earth. So many sick babies, little babies. It's horrible to have to watch little babies going through that. But you know what immediately happened when we brought Caleb home? Caleb gave us his first real smile into the world. And Celeste and I joked that he smiled because he's finally home and he's finally happy. But Caleb didn't learn to smile at home. Caleb learned to smile because for eight straight days, while he laid there on his hospital bed, every time he opened his eyes, he was met with the smile of his mother. For eight straight days, Celeste gazed at him, she smiled at him, and she sang over him. And somehow in the middle of oxygen tubes and beeping alarms, in the middle of stress and suffering, doctors and nurses, our son learned to smile for the first time in the PICU. And this Advent, Zephaniah 317 says, so can you. You can have real joy this Christmas, but you're not going to find it out there. You're not going to find it in changed circumstances. You're not going to find it in things finally going your way. You're not going to find it in slowing down and finally settling in. No, you're going to find it in your God who smiles over you and he sent his son at Christmas to be that smile. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. And I pray by your spirit as we enter into the table, your meal, that we would feel your smile in your body and your blood as we, as we eat this meal together. 
Lord, we need you to do a work in our hearts here. This, these words are too much for us to grasp. Take these words deep into our hearts, and may we sing gladly because you sing over us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.